0: One of the great truths that we Christians celebrate is that God works in all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, that he uses all circumstances to conform us into the image of his son, our Lord Jesus. We Christians love this. We love this truth and we hold on to it dearly. It helps us in so many ways, explains so much to us. But what we often don't like about it is, is that among all the many things God uses are the tests of poverty, prosperity, and power. How do you go with the test of poverty? Do you remain faithful to God and wait on Him? Or do you give up and, and rely upon yourself? How do you go with the test of prosperity? Do you remain faithful to God and become generous? Or do you tend to guard what you have and lust after more? And how do you go with the test of power? Do you remain faithful to God and use your power to bless others? Or do you become a a nasty despot and oppress with the power that you have? Poverty, prosperity, power. Three enormous tests for every single follower of God. Three tests that shape us into the likeness of Christ and three tests that remind us that we are totally reliant on God to remain faithful to his promises at all times in order to save us, not least because we fail in these tests. Poverty, prosperity and power. We struggle with them. Well, tonight, let's see how Abram goes as he encounters all three in our passage tonight. Let's pray and ask God's help as we hear. Our Father, we thank you that you are the God who speaks. Help us to be your people who listen. We would hear you tonight through your word, that we would understand that you would instruct us and help us as we seek to follow you as your faithful people today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Helen's going to come forward and read that for us. You'll find it on page nine on those Bibles in front of you. Remember to follow along, page nine on those black Bibles. You'll find an outline printed in your bulletin to follow as well. And for those of you under 18, you know what that means. I got chocolate for you. Thanks, Helen.
1: Sorry, I can speak loud. starting at chapter 12 verse 10 Abraham in Egypt now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe as he was about to enter Egypt he said to his wife Sarah I know what a beautiful woman you are when the Egyptians see you they will say this is his wife then they will kill me but will let you live Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken to his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So Abram went from, up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went to the place, from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and when he had built his first altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them while they were stayed together. For their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarrelling arose between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's. The Canaanites and the Pezzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarrelling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of Jordan towards Zoah was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the, of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived in the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are to the north and to the south, to the east and the west, all the land that you see I will give you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. We will come back to chapter 14 along our way. But uh, in the meantime, who was outraged by Abram's behaviour in his visit to Egypt? Yeah, me too. And rightly so. Yes, it's a test of poverty. But, you know, in trying to overcome this test, he becomes a slimy, lying, two-faced, self-loving scoundrel. Is is that too harsh? Maybe I should be harsher. Uh, The promised land was in famine. Yes, it was. That's scary. And Abram feared for his life. Yes, he did. But rather than calling on the name of the Lord... To provide for him, as the Lord had promised he would, well, Abram took matters into his own hands. And as a cunning man by nature, he well not only worked out how to survive the famine, but he also devised a method to get rich deceptively from the only asset he had that the rich Egyptians would admire. That's what the whole say you are my sister thing was all about. Indeed, Sarai was his half-sister. That was no lie. That was... It was true. Uh, But concealing they were also husband and wife, well, now we're moving into lies, right? And he did that so that they could trade on her beauty and singleness in order to stay safe and benefit from Egypt. So this trick would work or could work because in the ancient Near East, if the father of the woman was dead, then the brother would act as her chaperone and negotiate the bride price on her behalf for anyone who wanted to marry her. And so in this long journey down to Egypt, the Egyptians would marvel at the beauty of Sarai because she was indeed beautiful, and they would make Abram rich in order to convince him to let someone marry her. And he was in his rights to accept all such gifts and still refuse a wedding. And meanwhile, all this travel and negotiation could take many months, which would allow time for the famine to finish and up in the north. And they could, you know, leave Egypt having survived, maybe even become a little bit richer from the negotiations. Now, Sarai appears to readily agree with the plan, but then the whole deal backfired when, along with giving Abram sheep and cattle, and male and female donkeys, and med servants, and maidservants, and camels to try and convince him, Pharaoh then used his executive power and claimed Sarai for his harem. Major problem. That's not supposed to be the way these things work out. It wasn't part of their plan. Their deceit has now got them into all kinds of trouble, into a bind that only a miracle of God could save them from. And because God is faithful to his promises, he came to the rescue. Pharaoh and his household were immediately afflicted with some kind of pox. and uninfected Sarah is obviously the reason. She gets interrogated. Their lies are uncovered. And Pharaoh's fear for his life and his nation meant, well, they're just safely deported out of Egypt with everything they had. So Abram left Egypt, a much richer man than when he came in. So perhaps we could say that the trickery worked well. You know, well done you. His poverty was overcome and they were safe. But as we read on, we'll see that the wealth of Egypt now became a serious noose around his neck. Not just in the coming chapter, but but especially in the 25 years of difficulty that will now be created between Sarai and Hagar, her Egyptian maidservant. Uh, Worse again, as a missionary carrying the promises of God into a foreign nation, Abraham had failed absolutely miserably. Remember what it said back there in chapter 12? He was supposed to bring God's blessings to the nations, not God's curse. God had said, what did he say there, chapter 12? That all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, all nations. Instead, Abram became a curse on Egypt and they deported him for his appalling behaviour amongst them. Does that ever happened today where Christians behave badly and all the world goes, out of here? Of course they do. See, in forgetting God and relying on his own dog cunning to avoid poverty, he and Sarai and now the name of God become a curse to the Egyptians. And all of that plays out. An entire nation now rejects all of this because of Abram's lack of trust in God, doubting that God would be faithful to his promises. It's not that he stopped believing in God. We can see that by what happens next. It's, It's just that when poverty struck... He forgot how great God is, and he chose to rely on himself instead. What do you do in the test of poverty? When when God doesn't send blessings in the speed and in the timing that you've requested, do you turn to your own devices? It's tempting, isn't it? It's so easy to do that. But gee, what a mess we see it makes here. And without God's gracious, faithful and miraculous hand to save us, we, like Abram, would get lost in our cunning constantly. Praise, praise God for sending Jesus to seek and to save the lost and not to condemn us for our faithless and and foolish people that we so often are, especially in times of famine, especially then, when like Abram, I guess our our failures, what they constantly prove is that we need to call on the name of the Lord first and not last. We just need to call on him first and not last. Indeed, that's the lesson Abram eventually learned from this disaster. So having, having now been booted out of Egypt as a curse, Abram went back to the Negev, where he'd come from. That's where the, the famine had first struck. And we read, from the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. And there, Abram called on the name. At last, he called on the name of the Lord to be faithful to his promises. And the good news is that, for Abram, is that God is. God is faithful to his promises, even when Abram is not. God is faithful to his promises to us, even when we are not. And so we see now as Abram responds with a repentance and renewed devotion Well, I guess as we we keep going in the Bible, we can now breathe a sigh of relief. The plan of salvation is back on track. He's back in the promised land. Things are right between him and God. But not for long because, well, becoming rich has its consequences, doesn't it? Remaining faithful to God in the test of famine, that's difficult, isn't it? Very difficult. But no less difficult is remaining faithful to God in the test of prosperity, the test of prosperity remember jesus will famously say later in the bible it's easier for a rich oh, sorry to get a camel to thread a camel through the eye of a needle easier to do that than to have a rich man enter into the kingdom of heaven now, did he have in mind abram and lot when he said this well well he might because indeed that's what we see play out here in chapter 13 between them Because now they are afflicted. They're afflicted this time not by poverty. They're afflicted now with great prosperity. And it creates trouble. And we might think that prosperity will bring people together. Uh It does the opposite. And they naturally drew apart. They became self-righteously individualistic, jealous for their territory and envious for more. Or at least that was the case for Lot, wasn't it? Abram, on the other hand... Seemed to have learned his lesson from the disaster in Egypt. And this time, instead of relying on himself, he put his hope in the Lord and he was sacrificially generous to his undeserving nephew. So while Abram had failed the test of poverty, he stood tall now in the test of prosperity. Did you notice how Abram took the initiative to be his brother's keeper as he magnanimously offered to Lot anything he wanted? What it say there, verse 9, is not the whole land before you. Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. He's crazy. What is he thinking? It's an astonishing risk to take. Poverty could strike him in a moment. But this time, Abram remembered God's promises. And he looked beyond the present problem, the present conflict, to the future where God would keep those promises. And Abram here foreshadows the humble generosity of Christ, who did not grasp what was rightfully his to hold on to, but made himself nothing, that he would make others something. And for us in Christ now is a terrific example of living generously toward others, even when they're behaving badly, living generously towards them, to be a blessing to them, even when they are a curse to us. That's hard to do, isn't it? But it becomes possible, becomes possible when, like Abram, we believe the promises of God are ours in Christ. It's only possible if we believe that. That in him we have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for us. When we understand that we've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ and if we believe that, trust that, then it means we can stop grasping and holding onto our worldly prosperity, trying to protect ourselves. We're actually free to give it away. And God's response to this? To Abram doing this, well, it underlines now the rightness of Abram's choice as God rewarded Abram with assurance, blessed assurance, total confidence to know he's in the right spot, doing the right thing, oh, to have such assurance. And it happened as soon as Lot departed. Verse 14, God speaks to him, look around from where you are, the north, the south, the east and the west, all the land you see, which includes the stuff he's just given to Lot, all of it, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I'll make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. And with renewed confidence in God's promises, Abram, he becomes bolder and he becomes more faithful as he pitches his tents at Hebron next door to Mamre the Amorite and he builds there an altar to the Lord. And that's all so good. But sadly, the lessons these lessons were lost on Lot, Abram's nephew, weren't they? Dazzled by the prosperity before him, fearful to lose what he already had and envious for more, the choice for Lot was easy and he pitched his tent in the Jordan Valley as far as Sodom. Even at that time was already known for its great wickedness. Now we'll see in the coming weeks that Lot moved first near Sodom and then he moved into Sodom and then he became a citizen of Sodom and then he called the people of Sodom his brothers eventually all because of the prosperity that he longed to possess. Now we're assured in the New Testament that Lot never lost his faith in God and nor did he lose his salvation, but indeed he remains the biblical example of one who escapes but only through fire. He is the biblical example for us today of believers who choose the pursuit of prosperity over the pursuit of the promises of God. Who, to seek, sorry, who, who choose to pursue the things of this world rather than seeking first the kingdom of God. is that example of what it looks like to do that and especially with zero thought, with zero thought as to what the pursuit of prosperity might do to the hearts of his children, to those who followed him. Lot And Abram, both men of faith, both men who were saved by the promises of God, but who followed God in, well, very different ways and with very different results for anyone who follows their examples. In the test of poverty, both of them failed. In the test of prosperity, well, Lot failed where Abram succeeded. And Abram's doing well now, but there's no time to dally here because the next test is coming over the hill in our last instalment today in chapter 14, and that is the test of power. And that's what's laid out for us in chapter 14. So we're going to turn your Bibles open to that one. Let's check it out. Now, I didn't have Helen read this out earlier because of the strangeness of the many names and the people and places that can distract us from grasping the point. Uh, But we're not going to skip it, and we mustn't skip it, because this test of power here involves the most amazing rescue. This is mind-boggling stuff. It beggars belief. This was World War 2000 BC. This was World War 2000 BC, involving 15 separate nations when a willing coalition of four kings took on and defeated the five axis of evil kings in the valley of Sidim. Thanks, Abby. Next slide, please. They're defeating six other nations and kings along the way. And as overwhelming as all this is, in this test of power, go back one, sorry, that's it, that's where we are. In his test of power, we witness the amazing growth in Abram's trust in God's promises and how trusting God led Abram to save and bless thousands of people. That he did not fall to fear in the test of power, but nor did he lose his integrity to power and become a despot. This is mind-boggling stuff as this plays out. So scan your eyes down that chapter in the Bible in front of you. You're going to see a truckload of different names and places Uh, But watch the screen over here and I'm just going to, I'll show you how this plays out and go back later and check and make sure it matches. But uh, this is how it plays out. So first of all, big bad Kedalaoma of Elam over here started the campaign after the five kings who lived in the Valley of Sidim over here wanted to stop paying their taxes. So Kedalaoma of Iran, that's where we are in the world, grabs his mate Amraphel of Iraq, he picks up Ariok and Tidal from Turkey and Syria, and then the four of them, with their armies, head south. One by one, they now defeat all six nations and territories on the east side of the Jordan. And that's from Lake Galilee all the way down, all the way down, in fact, all the way down south to the Red Sea, and then they hook back up again north once more through Kadesh and Tamar. And in doing this, they trap the five kings of Sidim and cut off all their potential allies. This is military strategy. It's just spectacular if you're into that kind of thing. Maybe I am, obviously. Uh, now (laughs) The kings of Sidim, meanwhile, well, they line up for battle with their troops and then they run for their lives and hundreds who couldn't outrun them to the hills, well, they chose death in the tar pits of the Salt Valley, rather than to fall upon the swords of the four kings taking their vengeance. And those four kings, now having done their grisly work, they collect the plunder, including Lot and his family who live in Sodom. They collect all the plunder of Sodom and triumphantly start heading back north again, heading for home, this time on the west side of the Jordan River. Now, by the time a survivor gets to the news to Abram, who's near Hebron over here, they, well, they're well away. But in response, Abram grabs his three mates who live nearby, come on, Anna and Eshcol and Mamre, we've got a job to do, fellas, and then he picks up the, his little posse of 318 crack commandos born in his own household who he's trained for battle. Not bad to have 380 blokes who are ready to take on a sword in your house, Right? Together, they set off in hot pursuit. Now, they are chasing the war-hardened, successful armies of four kings, mind you, yet Abram risks everything to seek and save his lost nephew. Travelling hard, they catch up to them in the far northern end of the Promised Land, up here near Dan. The fight begins with a surprise attack at night and then runs over many days as Abram's men fight, kill and pursue the survivors for a 100 kilometres all the way north of Damascus in Syria. And they win. Woo-hoo! How amazing is that? Incredible, isn't it? And just think for a moment what this now means for Abram. What this now means for him. Nine kings have been defeated. Six other countries have been decimated. Abram is now top dog in the Middle East. There's no one better than him. And what a victory parade it then becomes. Here comes Abram, the conquering hero, returning home south again with his beloved nephew Lot and the plunder of, what, 15 armies and the peoples of 11 nations. Now, good news travels fast. And the first king to come and meet him is the strangely ungrateful king of Sodom. Fittingly, they meet up in the valley of the kings just south of the mountaintop kingdom of Jerusalem, known at the time as Salem in those days. Melchizedek, king of Salem, comes out with bread and wine and turns the whole thing into a party. Now, how will Abram go as top dog? He's top dog here. How will Abram now handle this test of power? That's the question, isn't it? God had kept his promises. One of those promises was to make his name great. His name is now great. But would he be a blessing now that his name is great? Or would he become a despot? And what about the promised land? Just think about that. Everyone's defeated. The entire promised land is, is the whole area we've been talking about. Those who could possibly stand against him are his allies. He could claim it right at this time. Forget the promises of God. He's now got the ability and the power to take it like that. It's his for the asking, by right of victory and conquest. What will Abram do with his power? We pick it up in verse 17. Let's come in chapter 14 now at verse 17. After Abram returned from defeating Chedorlaomer and the king's allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shevar, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord God, Most High, Creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I'll accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Anna, to Ashkol and Mamre. Let them have their share. Oh, what integrity. With great integrity, Abram aces the test of power, doesn't he? Absolutely aces it. His name has become great and he remains a blessing to all around him. He took all the risk. He paid the price And he saved without demanding a reward from anyone. And what a contrast we have here between the king of Sodom and Melchizedek. The king of Sodom came with nothing, not even a word of thanks. And he he demanded to take back the people of Sodom with an offer of the goods in payment to Abram for his rescue efforts. Yet Abram already had the right to everything. All those goods were already in his possession. The, The goods weren't... the the king of Sodom's to offer but on principle Abram refuses to allow anyone to make him his debtor only God would get the glory for making Abram rich Abram owed the king of Sodom nothing but perhaps a swift kick but still what does he do he blesses him he blesses him And once Abram's allies are paid, he sent the king of Sodom home with both his people and the goods. And in comparison to him, Melchizedek. Melchizedek had lost nothing in the first place and he also gained nothing from Abram's victory. He's completely neutral in this. Well, he came to meet Abram with a kingly feast and a blessing from God Most High and of God Most High for God's work in delivering Abram's enemies into his hands. And these two look at each other and this is an Anne of Green Gables moment. Kindred spirits, here they are. (sighs) See, Abram recognises in Melchizedek a fellow believer And you can tell he's a fellow believer because he attributes all the power and the glory to God and not himself, not to Abram. He attributes it all to God. And so we then witness this amazing moment of mutual blessing where Melchizedek gives to Abram food, wine and that blessing and Abram gives to Melchizedek now a full 10% of everything he had. See, not only has Abram now passed the test of power, God also has proved himself faithful to his promise that he will bless all those who bless Abram because that's what it said back in chapter 12. I'll bless those who bless you. And here it happens. And in this moment also, multiple precedents are set in place here that await the fulfilment in Christ which the New Testament will zero in on and unpack at length. For it's Jesus who will come as the high priest king in the line of Melchizedek, who will bring righteousness and peace through the bread and wine free will gift of his body and his blood just outside Jerusalem. And in, and in this glorious gospel moment, Abram also begins for us the pattern of giving to God a free will proportion Of everything we own. As we come each week and we give that free will giving. This is where that all begins. Done in recognition that no matter how much we have, all of it belongs to God. Because God is the one who makes us rich. God is the one who gives us the victory. He is the one who gives us the power in his name. And only right to bless from the prosperity he's supplied. How good is God? The things he shows us here. And and just look at how much Abram grew through these incidents, how Abram grew because of these tests, these tests that we hate so much, but how he grew to someone we now admire through the tests of poverty, prosperity and power. Yes, sometimes he does terribly badly. Sometimes he does well. And yet, even in his inconsistency, all the time, God is consistently faithful and present to mature and to improve Abram through all circumstances, using all things to shape him in the likeness of Christ. Because utterly consistent all along the way, utterly consistent all the way, God is faithful to his promises. And that's why, along with Melchizedek, we can say, Praise be to God most high. Amen.